Welcome, listeners, to Season 2, Episode 19 of Drinking and Screaming, a queer and feminist podcast about horror movies and cocktails. I'm Shar. And I might be Kelly. And this week, we watched our patron voted on classic horror, John Carpenter's The Thing from 1982. That was very spooky of you. (laughs) Before we dive into the episode, I wanted to let everyone know that our second audience feedback survey is now live. We'd really appreciate it if you could go fill out that short survey to help us make season three of Drinking and Screaming awesome. We love you and we know you have some awesome ideas for the show and we want to hear them or read them, I guess. You can find it at bit.ly slash DAS survey 2020. That's B-I-T dot L-Y slash D-A-S-S-U-R-B-E-Y two zero two zero. We also have some very exciting news that we will be saving for the ad break, so you'll have to stick around. I mean, (laughs) (laughs) now back to the episode. But first, we have an inspired cocktail creation that we made to match the mood and themes of the movie. But I don't know what the drink is, or do I? That's kind of the point. You didn't make the drink, so how can you really trust me? <laughs> the last, like, 10 to 15 minutes have been just the the most I've ever fucked with Char, and that was entirely uh, intentional. Mm-hmm. I wasn't allowed to look behind me. I got to eat a fish. It was a candy fish. Which may be incorporated. Or was it a red herring? <sighs> the, the candy fish was red, friends. It was red, and, and, and it was a pun. I also grabbed a bunch of liquors that aren't in the drink just to make noises behind Char, so she has no idea. Oh! And it's in a cup that you can't see what it is. I did hear a lot of clinking and clanking, but I was specifically trying not to pay attention. Yeah, most of that didn't matter. I thought, because the way that Kelly had set up the red fish, there were two on each drink, and I thought that it was kind of meant to be, maybe it was. The, like, uh, tentacles coming out of the dog thing? Yeah, exactly. Nope. Purely just a pun. Just a joke. Just a pun. <laughs> uh, so I call this drink the drink from another world, Ooh. which is actually a spoof on the original thing movie, not the one that we're watching today. <laughs> is that a red herring? Probably not. Who's, who's to say? <laughs> How many times are we going to hear that joke today? I don't know. I, I might not be Kelly. How many times does Kelly make a, just the same joke in one episode? But apparently it's the same personality, so it would be definitely accurate if you were alone for a long enough time. We'll see. Also, I don't know what this drink tastes like either, so maybe I'm not the thing. What? How come you don't know? <laughs> because I wanted to... I had a specific um, mood and theme I wanted to set with this drink. As oh, per the, so you know what's in it, but you don't know. I know what's in it, but I don't know what these chemical components turn into. Chemical? Yeah. <laughs> I mean, we're all made of chemicals. We're all made of stardust. Can I take a sip now? You can take a sip now. Are they the same? Can you tell me that? Yeah. They are the same? I, sp- I made a show of handing you a specific cup again as a red herring. <laughs> <laughs> you got me. You got me. I don't know what to say. Is it good? You're allowed to say if it's bad. I don't know if it's going to be bad or not. Well, I think uh, there's ice in my cup, so I think I got watered down champagne as my first sip. Sick. I mixed it, so it should be mixed well. It's not terrible. Not exactly what I was hoping it was going to be. Not. It's not bad. It's very good. I'm quiet because I'm trying to decipher what's in it. Oh, that's good. Um, Much like the movie. Yeah. And it's. is it bad that I don't know? Uh, I don't really care. <laughs> 
the idea is that the champagne is supposed to be like the frosty sting of the the snow. Yes. In the Antarctic. I'm definitely getting that. And then there's something a little bit hotter in there to represent all the burning that happens in this movie. And that's all I'm willing to tell you. <laughs> what? Yeah. Oh, my gosh. So you're, you're drinking a, a frosty snow drink with some fire in it. Ooh. But do you like it? Is it is it good? I don't mind. It, it is good. I do like it. I would definitely order this. I'm just trying my taste buds. I'm they're working overdrive. It's a very strong drink. I'm going to warn you there. OK, so I should try, probably take smaller sips. Like prob- <laughs> probably like a fourth of this cup is just pure liquor. And then sh- champagne has been added to the rest of it. Oh, my gosh. You know, the- how many how many things are in it? Just uh, two? Technically, hmm, technically, there are four. Four things, but one of them was already something. And again, I can't. This is so cryptic. Okay. I I can't tell you more than that. I'll just accept the mystery. Another uh, reading of this drink could be that the thing that I added to the champagne is the thing and it's mutated the drink into something else. But I like my first one better. So eat it. (laughs) Eat it, Carpenter. (laughs) So this week we watched The Thing from 1982. It premiered on June 25th of that year. It's written by Bill Lancaster, directed by John Carpenter, and based on the novella Who Goes There by John W. Campbell Jr. It stars Kurt Russell as white guy leader McCready, Wilfred Brimley as white guy Dr. Blair. Brimley. Great. How do you not know Wilfred Brimley? He's from the diabetes commercials. Hi, I'm Wilfred Brimley and I have diabetes. He's that guy. You've ne- wait. Have you seen the diabetes? I've seen the okay, diabetes. Um, Wilfred Brimley as white guy Doctor Blair and Keith David as black guy scientist Childs. Kind of ruined my flow there because the whole thing is this movie is just a bunch of white men and then there's like two black guys and that's the only differentiator. It's all just middle aged white people <laughs> and a big mutant and a bunch of dogs. All middle aged white people. <laughs> This synopsis is directly ripped off of IMDb. It's written by user Tomius J. Bernard. Barnard? Sure. In the midst of the Antarctican snowfield, the scientists and workers of a small American research base are shocked when a helicopter begins to circle their camp, chasing and shooting at a dog. When the helicopter is destroyed and the passengers are killed, the dog is let into the base and the Americans begin to wonder what has actually happened here. The helicopter has Norwegian markings. Must be from the Norwegian base not too far from their own. A team of Americans are sent to the Norwegian base and find out what has happened. On arrival, they find that the place has been totally destroyed. They also discover a mangled body that looks as though it was once that of a person, which they bring back with them for further study. It is only then that the clues begin to add up. The dog morphs horribly into a strange creature that attacks the researchers. They manage to fight it off, but they come to a terrible conclusion. An alien with the power to transform and take the appearance and personality of anybody else is amongst them. Who is infected already and who could be trusted? Helicopter pilot R.J. McCready sets out to find the answers to exactly that. The white guy leading the other white guys. They plan to do a blood test. Oh, this is me now. They plan to do a blood test to figure out who is the thing. But unfortunately, all the stored blood has been destroyed. The group begins to turn on each other one by one as tensions escalate. 
The doctor is isolated in a small cabin outside and they split off in groups of two or three. When it's assumed McCready is the thing, he threatens to blow himself up if anyone comes near. He decides to tie everyone up and collect blood samples from all of them. The thing will have no choice but to defend itself if it comes into contact with fire. So McCready tests each blood sample one by one. Eventually, the thing is found out by some white guy. I don't know who it is because they're all white and they all have no names, (laughs) but manages to destroy more of the crew and escape. The only way to save the world slash maybe live is to blow up the base in a world of TNT and fire. It is clear that the doctor was trying to escape and he created a secret underground base, which the remaining Americans fill with dynamite and blast it to high hell. In the end, only Kurt Russell and Keith David are left at the blown up site. I always wondered what that underground thing was. I assumed it was like storage for the facility because the facility had been there for so long. But it was like secret. I know that the area with the UFO that the doctor was making was secret, but I think the rest of the area underneath the base was just like their storage area because there was a lot of. Oh, okay. Yeah, there was a lot of like destroyed things from the base that kind of just look like something broke and they put it down there. Okay. That and, does make sense. And that's where their generator was kept. Right. Yes. But I think the I area- thought it was all just from that guy uh, digging its hole. No, I think just the area with the UFO was okay. Yeah. Now, you know, this movie way better than I do. So can you actually tell everybody the characters names and what their differentiators are? <laughs> There's McCready, the, uh, not, the hero, <laughs> the guy that doesn't want to be leader, but it's thrust upon him. Gary, the guy that's actually a leader, but kind of wusses out after a while. Knowles, the chef. Childs, who's the engineer. I think he's chief engineer. That's Keith David. Uh, yeah. Palmer, who is stoner guy, who I think also might be training to be a pilot. Um, I want to say Bennings is the name of the doctor, but I'm not too sure. That sounds right. Then there's... Norris, who I believe is... Friend of the podcast. Yeah, friend of the podcast, (laughs) Norris. I think he might be the assistant biologist, but that might be Fuchs. And then, okay, who else? Then there's Window, or Windows, who is the um, communications officer. And then, uh, fuck, what's the name of the... There's one more guy, I think. One or two more guys. One of them is the dog quartermaster. Oh, yeah. I had to look it up because I couldn't remember his name, and it was for one of my points. Do you not remember it now? Nope, but I will when we scroll down and I get to it. (laughs) The only reason that I remember uh, most of these is because I had to do the facts. But also, like, there are the main ones, like McCready and I would say Windows, his name gets said enough. Mm. Um, I was mostly going for a bit of the middle-aged white man, because they are not all middle-aged either. There's a clear, like, the young guys, the older guys. Yeah, there was a fact. I didn't write it down, but there was, I think, the youngest person in the cast was 23 upon filming. Okay. Which might have been Nulls, but I can't remember. It. I think the blood test scene definitely helps if you haven't been paying attention because it has everybody's name written on the little yes, thingy. Yes, on the Petri dishes. And then they like look over at the guy and it's like, all right, child. Is time. it you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, super true. Um, I also wanted to double check with you. How was that synopsis? Because I still find this movie a little bit confusing. Um, I mean, that's the best that we're going to get. <laughs> if you wanted to go into the fine details of every scene and every person that talks to each other, then you could. All right. Well, then hit me with that trailer audio. This is U.S. Station 31. You read me? Found something in the ice. We need some help down here. 
warmest place to hide <laughs> that was pretty good in space <laughs> no one can hear you scream in a man no one can hear you be warm <laughs> i'm glad that it included the oh the screaming yeah. so it was again know it was, what we're talking about <laughs> i mean i'll probably include it in the trailer it was an, again one of those trailers that kind of showed too much like we see when a lot of them turn into the thing so we kind of get an idea of who's gonna die but it was just a flash and they're all very similar I don't know. There's the one ginger guy. <laughs> That's true. And Wilford Brimley. Hopefully you wouldn't think of it too much. But yeah, I do agree. Also a very shaggy haired uh, Kurt Russell. Mm-hmm. I liked that trailer. I kind of wished that it ended after that first bit when it was just the title coming in. And it's like, we found something. We found something. We found something. And then yeah. it just cut. But I feel like that's too modern to do. If it was a teaser, it, maybe that is the teaser version. This is just their regular trailer. Yeah. I don't understand why I struggle sometimes finding teasers. Like, do some movies just not do teasers? Yeah, I don't know. Maybe they didn't do that that much in the oldie days. Mm. In them oldie days, they really needed the commercial that was like, in a world where everything is cold and there's a bunch of men that found an old alien the alien jumps inside of them and also hides as the men, and now they don't know who is who. Twelve men. Do you think there's like a metaphor about Jesus? Or the movie Twelve Angry Men? <laughs> Which is also, I think, about not trusting each other. Well, yeah. I mean, it's about jurors. Not trusting each other. Yeah. No one trusts each other when there's 12 of them. Whoa. Just like the apostles. You. <laughs> it all tied back. It all makes sense. Do you have some thoughts? I do have some thoughts. I need to do the requisite. Uh, this is one of those movies where I'm, I can't speak too much about it because I learned a bunch about it in, in, in school and I'll just be repeating what my teachers are saying. So these are my points and they might be bad, but you can suck it. Are you going to talk about how it's like homophobia slash? I'm going to talk a little bit about that as my second point, but I'm going to start happy. Yay. Happy. Uh, so as a few people may know, um, I love environmental storytelling. Mm -hmm. This mostly comes out when I talk about video games and such, because that's where my specialty is. For sure. But this movie probably has like the best and my favorite environmental storytelling. And that's when they go to the Norwegian base because we've never, we haven't seen anything happen in this base, but the, the set and the design tell you a story through little details that don't really need to be there. Right. Like we see holes that the thing could have scurried through. We see clear signs of like fights and combat. We see like very specifically placed burn marks and stuff like that. And it kind of just makes you think of like, Ooh, what actually went down here? I get to see the aftermath, but now I want to see what actually happened. And I think this is all where Kurt Russell gets his like, oh, we have to burn it later yeah. idea is because he remembers all those burn marks. All the times that they've tried to burn the thing. We also saw a really scary suicide victim. Oh, yeah. Which and that was like overkill suicide. He like slit his own th wrists and then th cut his own throat in half. Yeah. 
like deep like how which really tells you that like whatever happened here was that bad like yeah. unforgivably bad and then we see like basically the coffin of the thing that has been opened and it all builds this like narrative of like interesting interested to see what happened but also now scared that it's going to happen to you as well and we get to see the americans try to piece this together themselves even though like it stands to reason that the Nor- norwegians knew everything all along because they just had it happen to them as well yeah but now the Americans have to figure out again. So it's kind of like we got to see the aftermath of the whole movie first and then got to see it happen in real time. Yeah. And that's inter. I do like movies. Some movies actually show you the literal ending and then they're like, but how did we get there? Yeah. Which this is similar, but different. Yeah. It'd be like if somebody showed up at Camp Blood and there were just like dead bodies hanging from everything and they're like, no, oh, well, let's clean up and have ourselves a good summer. And then you're like, <laughs> what? What happened? <laughs> and then Jason comes out of the water and he's like, again? Okay. <laughs> yeah, I just love it. It's probably like called something else in movie where it's just set dressing or I something. I like that in movie. In movie? It called something else. I think environmental storytelling can be used as a term in both fields. Yeah. I just think of like Skyrim placing a sword hanging in a frozen ceiling and a hand at the bottom. And it's like, oh, it's Luke. It's Luke Skywalker, but in Skyrim form. <laughs> I don't know why I always go to that example. I just, I think it's funny. Yeah, that's fine. It's a good example. All right. My next point is the kind of bummer one. Okay, I'm ready. So you mentioned that it is kind of an allegory for like the gay panic around the time. Yeah. But I couldn't actually find anything specific about that. And I've actually seen like a few discussions about the movie being an allegory for the AIDS epidemic. Yep. But mm, Carpenter hasn't really like, as far as I know, I couldn't find any specifics from Carpenter. Like it is based about what he wanted the movie to say. Yeah. Cause it's based on a novella that was written before the AIDS epidemic. Yeah. Oh, right. So I like to think that it's a novel or that it's a movie about just like paranoia in general yeah. and the mistrust of people when you're in a hostile environment, mm-hmm. especially because the creature, if it was an allegory for AIDS, wouldn't make sense because people with AIDS don't specifically want to give other people their AIDS. Yes, this is true. Like the idea of being afraid that someone does have AIDS. And the concept of like, do I have it? Am I the thing? I don't maybe I don't even know if I'm the thing. Yeah. Kind of goes with it. The disease doesn't want to give it to other people. It doesn't really make sense when you start to yeah. peel, peel back the layers. So I would like to give it the benefit of the doubt in that it's in general, the paranoia of men like the, there's the red panic with the communists. There's the AIDS epidemic. Like there's so many things that people in general just get real uppity about. Yeah. And they don't trust anyone when things happen. So I think it's just more of a commentary on society at large and how they handle things. That's fair. I mean, if we look out Right now, people sure ain't handling this pandemic well. Oh, boy. So it's always an up-to-date commentary on the shittiness of humans. That was actually funny. I'm going to just break in here and say we had a Zoom call with my parents today, and they were like, Shar, do you think you were sick? You get sick all the time. Do you think you had COVID? And I was like, I don't know. Here are all the reasons why I'm pretty sure I don't, but I haven't been tested. I don't leave the house. But then they kept being like... But you do have it or maybe you do. And like it was very funny because it did remind us of this film and how like convoluted it all was. Yeah. You show who knows for sure. The symptoms of the thing are that you are paranoid that 
<laughs> also, being around the thing makes you paranoid. It's really hard to tell, I would say. <laughs> but yeah, I don't know. I don't like to think that it's specifically about any one thing. Like thing. Thing. Ha. Huh? The closest I could find is the fact that they are a research base, but have so much weaponry is weird. But that might just be off of the back of like America. Yeah. And like, (laughs) I don't know. That's what I think. Coming out of the war, you're generally mistrusting of people around you. And they know there's a Norwegian base and there might be a Soviet base. Who the fuck knows? And we don't know what they were studying there. Uh, Apparently. Or we do. Potentially. So the... uh, the people in the movie, it said that they might just be a skeleton crew taking care of it during the winter, because generally speaking, testing is done during milder weather. Right. So these are just the guys that come in and take care of the base while winter is happening. Uh, I think in the so novel, kind of like The Shining, how they're like, yeah, exactly. Okay, yeah, that makes sense. Which is a really cool uh, parallel. But also, I think in the novel, it says that they're testing um, the effects of magnetism and like radio signals in low climate weather. Which is hmm. would be funny because Windows radio doesn't work immediately. So true. Okay, so Windows <laughs> is the seventies guy. Yeah, Windows is the stoner who. Oh no, Windows is that seventies guy. The yeah, guy that you thought looked like uh, that pedophile who we don't like. Yes. Yeah. We his, don't even need to mention his name. Him. I don't remember. Let's him. move on. What's your next point? Uh, so my final point, because I have a lot of facts for this one. Just a heads up. <laughs> is that I really love the final conceit of this film where it's basically like, you know that you've lost and your only option is to sacrifice yourself and for the betterment of mankind. Mm -hmm. Like these aren't drunk, horny teens in a summer camp somewhere who are slowly getting killed off by this slasher. Like these are smart, educated scientists who know what this thing is capable of and know that the best thing that they can do is basically off themselves to make sure that this doesn't spread and destroy the world, destroy the world. And Uh, the doctor realizes that very quickly. Yeah. His whole thing is like, I'm going to destroy the radios so that nobody can get out. And they tell, they make it seem like he's overreacting because he's like, I just, we basically have to kill everybody now. But that seems like a pretty good reaction. If you're thinking of the betterment of everyone. There's also a theory that at that point he was already Already assimilating. Yeah. Yeah. And he did that just specifically to get isolated so that he could work on, the UFO oh. and work without any suspicion because people think he's trapped out there. Which did make sense. Mm-hmm. There's a lot, a lot of speculation about the order of assimilation in this movie. And an argument can be made for literally. Yeah. Everyone was assimilated immediately. And then they were just fucking with each other. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I also like that. It's so fucking bleak. Like, I read a lot about um, like old horror movies around the time and it kind of had to be like either chippery chipper or upbeat or like have a fun conclusion Mm -hmm. or like, you know why? Because of E.T. No. Oh, (laughs) I mean, people apparently hated the thing because it came out after E.T. and they wanted a fun, cute alien that got along with kids. Not for this movie specifically, but in general, because of the haze code, which I talk about a lot in our psycho episode. Tell me more of the rule that motion picture association put for basically all movies had to have like happy endings, specifically if you're going to go like deep, dark horror, like the bad guys have to be punished, all that stuff. It goes with like the same rules of, Husband and wife have to be in separate beds. This is for like earlier than the yeah. thing. So this is outdated now. Yeah. But um, we can all be sad <laughs> after a movie. 
<laughs> exactly. Uh, and that's very cool that they they really pushed aside from that oh, uh, yeah. history. And apparently Carpenter had to fight for a lot of this movie. Like, that makes sense. They, I don't I don't uh, disagree. <laughs> like specifically, there was a more uplifting ending written uh, and he didn't like it and they didn't do it. So <laughs> a lot of this movie is built on the back of Carpenter, which is interesting because uh, I don't have a fact about it, but nobody fucking liked this movie when it came out. It got I saw the budget. Yeah. Now, spoilers it didn't do too good. <laughs> it got universally canned and. It's now uh, probably one of the best movies ever made. So fuck yeah. everyone, I guess. I would do anything to not be appreciated in my time. <laughs> I forget what that's from, but you it's- suck too. <laughs> it's from Friends. Oh yeah, it's from Friends. Yeah. <laughs> I want to start. Wait, are you done? That yeah. was your last point. That's the rest of my points before I get to the facts. Woo! All right, I'm jumping in here, but I have to say this drink is dangerous. Oh, is it My getting friend. there? It is. I had to put it down because as we were talking, I kept taking sips and I'm like, oh boy. Can't leave you alone with it. <laughs> I feel like the components that aren't the champagne are slowly like assimilating the champagne into tasting like the other components. Ah. So maybe my second theme was good. <laughs> I still like the cold snow and the burning hot. Yeah, it works. My first point is that I'm not sure if we mentioned this or not. I feel like we probably have. That this is the first ever horror movie that Kelly showed me. Aww. Yeah, I had to show you one of the really artsy ones because if... So you I had to take you seriously. Well, no, I was going to say, if you didn't like this, then it was take pretty early in our relationship. <laughs> so. <laughs> nice. Uh, but yeah, I remember when we first watched it, I was so mad at the opening of this film with the helicopter and they're like shooting this dog and me, I mean, it's no secret. I'm an avid dog lover. So harumph <laughs> for that. But it's so sad that it does a 180 and the dog is not a dog. And then it just destroys all the other dogs. And it's so sad. And this is the guy's name who I had to look up. His name is Clark. Yeah. He's I identified so much with Clark because he loved the dogs and he was trying to save them. Even when Kurt Russell was like, burn them. Like, ah, <laughs> oh, so sad. He also never turned like he his, was good the whole time. His whole story arc was I love these dogs. The dogs are getting murdered. Fuck. M- fuck McCready. And then get shot, shot in the, the head. head. Yeah. Oh, man. He was a dog lover to the end. We have some news. On Friday, June 26th at 8 p.m. PDT, we'll be playing Vampire the Masquerade live with Matthew Mercer from Critical Role, B. Dave Walters from L.A. by Night, and so many other special guests. You can watch us be vampires in Vancouver on Vancouver by Night, which will stream live on Twitch at twitch.tv slash Vancouver by Night. This is our season finale and an event that will be benefiting two amazing charities, Wava and The Trevor Project. I'm going to do a special shout out for Wava because they're awesome. They're a local Vancouver charity and they're BC's largest rape crisis center. They offer trauma-informed feminist support to survivors of sexualized violence and their services are open to cis and trans women and people of all marginalized genders, including two-spirit trans and non-binary people. As a rape survivor myself, their services have been invaluable to me and to so many other people as well. 
To donate to the campaign, you can watch us live on June 26th at 8 p.m. PDT at twitch.tv slash Vancouver by night. There will be links on there using their Tiltify in-stream donation partnership thing. We've never done it before, but it'll be great. You can talk to us there. If you're not watching it live, the donations will still be open for up to a month after the stream. So go donate. Help save lives. We'll also be sharing a link on our Twitter and Facebook and other places that you find us. Probably in the description of this podcast that you're listening to right now. Whoa. As I mentioned at the beginning of this episode, our second audience feedback survey is now live. We'd really appreciate it if you could go fill out that short survey to help us make season three of Drinking and Screaming awesome. We value your opinion and we want to hear your ideas. You can find it at bit.ly slash DASSurvey2020. All the information you can ever need about us is on our website at www.drinkingandscreaming.com. If you want to help support the show and get some awesome rewards like stickers, coasters, bonus episodes, and more, go to patreon.com slash drinkandscream. That's also where you can vote on our Patreon polls to tell us what we should watch next. Like we did for this episode. What we do with this thing? You guys decided. They voted on this thing. Whoa. The thing is the thing that you voted on. The thing. <laughs> the thing. Now back to the thing. <laughs> My second point, not a single lady. All the single ladies, all the single ladies, all the single ladies. You're not in this. Nope, (laughs) just some guys up in this movie. There's no ladies here. Maybe the thing, it's never been told what gender of that thing is. (laughs) If you like it, then you let it assimilate. If you like it, then you let it assimilate. Oh, oh. Oh, my God. But yeah, besides the voice, that was really good. I don't. I just, that was great. I just pictured, off the cuff. I pictured the dean in Community after he does that like peanut rap, <laughs> and he drops the mic. He's like, "I don't know what that was. I don't know what that was." <laughs> Someone clip it. Uh, besides the voice of the computer game at the start of the film, so the only woman in the whole movie gets called a cheating bitch and gets a drink thrown at her, which kind of sucked. And I really beat this point to like a dead horse of how everyone is basically a middle-aged white man besides Elroy from Community, a.k.a. Captain David Anderson from Mass Effect, a.k.a. Keith David. And it makes talking about all the characters very confusing. (laughs) (laughs) Well, in the original, uh, wait, do you talk about the thing from Another World? No. So in the original, the thing from Another World, there were some ladies And there was also originally supposed to be a lady in this movie, but she was pregnant upon the time of filming, so they cut her character. Ah, that's not what I've heard. Really? I heard Lancaster's script eschews female characters, this is a direct quote, because he believed that a female character would be a love interest who inevitably gets in the way. Fuck you! We are more than just love interests, Lancaster. Go die. Just a bunch of cheating chest machines. Yep. Uh, yeah, that's weird. I guess maybe Lancaster said that first. Maybe he said that, then they added a female character, but she was pregnant. And they had to make her pregnant so she could be undesirable. No, the actress was pregnant. Oh, I see. So they had to remove her character because the actress showed up pregnant. Huh. Or not showed up pregnant. I think she got pregnant during pre-pro and then they had to I mean, to people can still work while they're pregnant. During like a jump scare near a lot of explosions, <laughs> fiery death movie. I Whatever. Would, I would probably not risk it. I mean, 
The real answer is they could have recast her. But and they didn't. No. It was just men. I also remember a rumor that the dog was a female, but no, literally the only female in this movie was the chess machine. Ugh. Which I will point out, I said it was a great parallel for Kurt Russell at the end because he gets checkmated and then he's like, I'm going to blow this shit up. Yeah, if I can't win, I'll destroy the game. And that's exactly what he does at the end. Uh, you, it might interest you that the 2011 movie actually has a strong female lead. So good. It's not a great movie, but it does have a strong female lead. <laughs> And then my last point, I just want to open up a little discussion here about the couch tie up scene, because to me, it seemed very off tone because it was very funny. Like the last guy, the guy who was like supposed to be the leader, but was bad at it. Gary. Yep. Which is, you know, we got McCready, (laughs) Windows, Childs, Gary. (laughs) But he... He's very like he's proven last to be um, not a thing. Yeah. And then he's like, can you get me out of this channel? I would like to not spend (laughs) the rest of this winter tied to this fucking chair. Yeah. And it was just very funny, which is it was good funny. It wasn't poorly done, but it just felt like a weird tonal shift for me. And when you watch before he gets released, there's like the three guys still attached to the couch. Yeah. While one of the things is like being revealed and it starts attacking another guy and they're all like, oh, my God. But then as you see the thing attacking somebody and you also see in the same frame, the three guys on the couch. This is kind of bad because it's a visual or an audio medium, but they just like shake a little bit, they wiggle and like. It's really, there's no stakes in any of them at all. And it ruined it because they're all like, I'm so scared. Oh, my God. I'm surprised that you were looking at the guys wiggling in the chair and not what was clearly a man holding up a puppet, shaking it around in the air (laughs) with no physics whatsoever. (laughs) And then I, yeah, it is. It is interesting because I think I talked about this when we finished watching John Wick part three is that I really appreciate an action movie that can integrate like comedy into their action or their cutting or whatever. Mm -hmm. Cause John Wick is a comedy movie. Yeah. uh, Through the guise of action. And there's a few cuts where like McCready is testing someone's blood. And after testing it, he's like, he looks at the camera and then it immediately cuts to the guy that he just tested standing next to him, holding a flamethrower. Yes. That was good too, which is very, that was like right before this. Yeah. I agree that the whole scene is kind of funny, but it's done in, an editing way? I don't know. The wiggling is unforgivable. That's just dumb. Yeah. They should have been trying to like yank themselves in one direction. They could have done a lot of things. And I that's really something that theater performance has taught me. There will always be somebody looking at you, regardless of if you're in the main action or not. If you're on the fucking screen, be believable. All right, Miss Theater. Tell me this then. When... I think it's Norris. When Norris's stomach opens up and the guy gets his arms cut off. Yeah. Did you notice that the guy was wearing a really bad looking mask? No. Because they hired an actual double amputee to play the character at that point. And so many people were focused on the severed limbs that they didn't notice that he was just wearing a bad mask. That's cool. No, I did not notice. Very cool. That's also great that they hired somebody that was a double amputee. Yeah, it's cool. It's like Walking Dead. That's an amazing thing. How yeah. so many people get work on that show. I mean, they also do uh, CGI stuff and like remove limbs all the time on there. But it's great for background performers or regular people who yeah. want to have a shot at being 
on TV or in film for fun. I mean, as an aside, I think it's sad that they have to be cast as like horror victims and can't be like romantic leads. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, let's not even open that can of worms <laughs> because society's beauty standards of like, oh, yeah, let's There's only on. one type of man and one type of woman that can be a romantic lead. Yeah. Yeah. If you don't fit the mold, good luck being a character actor. Then it's probably a comedy romance. Wink. Yeah. Don't even get me started about the wrong Missy. <laughs> okay. <laughs> That's a, It's a movie on Netflix. The wrong Missy? Yeah. It's a new movie. Anyways, let's just cut that I was whole thinking, part out. I was thinking of like love where the female lead is Britta, but then the like male lead is kind of like a dork, <laughs> but it's a comedy yeah. romance. So anyways. I want some. Scaredy facts. (laughs) Tell me the story. Well, don't tell me. Tell them. So every time that Char and Kelly, I mean myself, uh, watch a horror movie, we'll slink into bed, shoot out our red sticky tentacles and read some (laughs) IMDb trivia facts to help uh, not terrify us. That's a human emotion of this movie that we just watched. And we've integrated, we've assimilated this aspect of our relationship into this podcast that we will now assimilate into you. Yay! So I did the facts for this episode. (gasps) Uh, except for the budget. Char always writes those. Yeah. So the budget was a staggering. Okay. I just want to set perspective. I think the the budget for Halloween, which was John Carpenter's previous movie, 700,000, 300,000. But that was supposed to be like bad movie. But cheap. regardless, <laughs> he was hired specifically because of Halloween. Yeah. So 300,000 or 700,000. I can't remember. It doesn't matter. It was cheap. Yeah. Ish. The budget for the thing, $15 million. Which makes sense when we didn't really talk about it, but the practical effects in this oh, yeah. are astounding. Think of the things as well, like practical effects, location, which was actually in a snowy British Columbia region. I think hey! it's Stewart. That's Stu- right. Yeah. Stewart, British Columbia. Also a few of them in Alaska. Apparently it cost $75,000 alone to heat the actors so they didn't die. Wow. Uh, you need all your cast and crew there. All the explosions and destruction of set. Uh, yeah, that's an expensive ass movie. Yeah. Opening weekend, 3.1 million. Oh, no. <laughs> but it is gross. 19.6 million, which is always disappointing. Like this movie should have made so much more than that. Yeah. And it's, what's weird is on the IMDb, the IMDb, it said the gross USA was 19.6 million. But then it also said that the worldwide was 19.6 million. So no one else in the world has watched this movie. Well, I'm just like, I feel like that is not right. Maybe it's a I bug. don't know. So I took it out and I just put the USA amount. We're not perfect. Whatever. Yeah. <laughs> We're not a perfect recreation of Shar and Kelly. What? But I really want to know about these facts. I am I am into it. I am excited. And this drink is strong. Holy Good. fuck. I think I might have removed a bunch of the facts about how disappointed Carpenter was with this movie. Uh, my first fact that isn't official is that, you know, that that classic poster of like the guy in the snowsuit with like the light yes. behind him. Mm-hmm. That was made without any knowledge of what the movie was. It was literally the artist made it. I heard it was very last minute. It was last. It was an, and it was a take it or leave it thing. Like since it was so last minute, Carpenter had no choice choice. He had no choice. And yet it's so iconic. But specifically he 
throughout the entire development, he didn't want it to be like a classic slasher flick of someone running around stabbing people. Right. He would remove scenes that made it feel too much like Halloween. And at the end of uh, production, they did the review screenings. It got canned and he was so sad. And then finally they gave him this poster that they're like, this is your poster. And he's like, it just looks like a fucking slasher flick. Like they should have just painted a bloody knife in this guy's hand. Like that's just the cap on top of everything. Oh man. So he came out of this, like just just, like destroyed. Defeated. Yeah. He's really glad now that it's a cult classic. (laughs) Um, but yeah, the, just out of that, he came, he was called so many things. Like Man. someone called him that a that poster is good. Someone called him a gore pornographer. Just uh, yeah, it was really bad. Nobody respected it when it came out, which is too bad. People call that reminds me of like the Saw franchise. A lot of people are like, "That's just torture porn," and I'm like, "It's not." I mean, it becomes torture porn later on. The first one, not so much. Later on, it definitely is. All right, real facts that yes. I wrote down. Tell me. So in August 2003, a couple of hardcore fans, Todd. Cameron and Stephen Crawford ventured to the remote filming location in Stewart, British Columbia, because apparently they just left the set there. And after this, this is worded wrong. It it says after 21 years, which kind of makes it sound like they were out there looking for it for 21 years. (laughs) But after 21 years after the filming of this movie, they found the remains of outpost number 31 and the Norwegian helicopter. Do you think 31 is from Halloween? Like a reference, like a, like a little wink. I don't know, because it was called Outpost 4 at the beginning of the movie. Oh. And then everyone what? says 31. It's like when we get what? the when we get the title screen, it says uh, American Outpost 4. But then everyone calls it 31. And then it's just called 31 for the rest of the movie. What the heck? <laughs> uh, but these guys grabbed the rotor blade from the helicopter. Um, and it is now uh, part of their collection of memorabilia from the film. That's cool. All right, my next fact. At around 15 minutes when the dog wanders down a hallway and pauses outside of a door, we see the shadow of one of the men, and it is beckoned in. Uh, John Carpenter specifically wanted it to be mysterious as to which character that was, so that's not actually one of the actors. It's just a random Ah, person casting a shadow. Cool. Because I believe it's like Palmer and uh, someone else are generally believed to be assimilated extremely early in the movie. Which one's Palmer? The stoner guy. Oh, yeah. The guy who like explodes in the chair. Yeah. yeah. And then someone else is supposed to be assimilated really early. Uh, So it's believed that it's one of those two, but it's specifically made to look like nobody. Yeah. Huh. That's cool. This one's just fun. Two characters in the movie are nicknamed Mac, which is McCready, and Windows, which is a nickname inspired by the fact that the character always wears glasses. Since this was filmed in 1982, this is purely coincidental and has nothing to do with Apple and Microsoft's famous rival tech brands. Now, so you mentioned the only female in this movie was the chess machine. Did you know that it was actually voiced by the wife of John Carpenter? Adrienne Barbeau. Barbeau? Barbeau. Adrienne Barbeau. That's cool. Yeah. Nice. So. See you. And. She's uncredited, though. Still. You got to make movies and then just give me all the free shit rolls in them. Yeah. <laughs> I got something to talk about right now. Oh, I feel a tonal shift. So anyone who listens to this podcast knows my least favorite composition ever is when someone is in focus very close to the screen. There is a clear blur between the characters and then the person in the background is focused. Yep. I learned something today. Okay. So that apparently is not 
superimposed. There's apparently a thing called a di- oh, fuck a diopter split focus lens, and it is used in several shots of the scene with McCready and uh, Fuchs in the lab. You know when Fuchs is like talking to McCready and he's got like the bucket of or the like vial of acid. Yep. I noticed that it was shot similar to the way that all of these dumb, dumb shots that I hate are shot. Right. And apparently that's a diopter split focus lens. So I have to apologize to anyone that was offended by the fact that I thought it was a dumb composition thingy. And it's actually a technique used to have two subjects in focus. And it is not superimposed. It's actually shot by itself. I don't think I think that it's done not like that in the recent films that we've seen. Apparently, it's a really easy lens. I we have diopter split focus lenses in at my work. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, wow, I don't know enough to comment. The thing I specifically like about the use of it in this movie is that they have very specifically placed shadows in the area that would be blurred. So it's a really dark oh, room. Oh, okay. It's got both subjects focused, but the part that would be blurry and obnoxious is actually cast so much in shadow that you can't notice the point where the one the one lens ends. All right. All right. Because I was going to say that it looked way better Hell than yeah. the other ones did. Because, oh, okay. Because a professional was using it. <laughs> I looked at it and it literally looks like half a lens put on front on the front of a regular lens. So it like changes the focal depth, I guess, through that one point. And the fact that it's blurry is because there is a middle midpoint Clear line. Yeah. yeah. Huh. Uh, so apparently you can make it look good. Interesting. Yeah. I, 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 I don't forgive the people who make it look bad because you can make it look good. And they did it several years ago. All right. My next fact is for you, Shar. <gasps> for me, it's about the dog. It's about the dog. Does the dog have a name? Uh, yes. The dog's name was Jed. Aww. John Carpenter was incredibly impressed with the work of this good boy. And the shot of him walking down the hallway searching for the human was done in only four or five takes. Aw, Jed, you're so good. And apparently he never looked at the camera or the dolly. Ah. So he was a very good boy to work with. What a professional pupper. Yeah. And then he was the thing. And, and he was so good at running, you know, those runs. I thought when we were watching it, I was mentioning in the beginning of the movie how the dog was supposed to look like it was running weird. That's just how dogs run in snow. Yeah, I thought I read a fact about it a while ago, but I couldn't find anything. So I must have been wrong. Were you thinking maybe of how he like sits in the cage and is like very stoic? I don't know. Mm. (laughs) I thought it was specifically with the opening scene, but I was wrong. All right. I have a surprise for you. (gasps) So the words spoken by the pilot on entering the camp are actually understandable for Norwegians. Albeit it's broken Norwegian, but the lines go and I actually have a clip from our resident Norwegian pronouncing these words the right way so that I don't have to pronounce them. Is it Dave? <laughs> yes. Yay, Dave! Hi! Uh, he, he's not actually here, but I want to hear a clip! Det er helvete å komme dere vekk. Det er ikke en bikkje. Det er en slags ting. Det imiterer en bikkje. Det er ikke virkelig. Kom dere vekk, idioter! That was so good! Thanks, Dave! <laughs> what does it mean? <laughs> he recommended I try to say it just for fun. Uh, so here we go. Setil hilvet og kom dervek. Det er ik and bikje. Det er and slags ting. Det imiter error and bikje. Det er ik 
Kjelling. Is that Viking? Kom der weg, idioter. Idiot! Definitely idiot at the end. So this translates to uh, get the hell out of there. That's not a dog. That's some kind of thing. It's imitating a dog. It isn't real. Get away, you idiots. Wow. So if you're Norwegian, you know. You know immediately. Yeah. Which is haunting. Like, imagine watching this movie and that's like the first introduction to a new character is that thing's not a dog. Run away, you fucking idiots. It's imitating a dog. And you're like, I'm sorry. What? <laughs> what? Uh, good times. Yeah. Jeez. So thank you to Dave for pronouncing that better than I did. Thanks, Dave. This next fact kind of has something to do with one of my points about the storytelling of the Norwegian camp. Yes. Yeah. So apparently the Norwegian camp scenes were actually the charred remains of the American site from the end of the film. Rather than go to the expenses of building and burning down another camp, John Carpenter just reused the destroyed American camp. Oh, that's really cool. So those were just reshots of the remains of the exploded set. Which just goes to like foreshadow sort of. You that it's say. the same events that are going to happen. Yeah. Which is cool because like now that you think about it, there's the scene of child's breaking down the door with the axe yep. to get to McCready. Mm -hmm. And when they go to the Norwegian base, there's an axe sticking out of the door, which is like just very foreshadowing to the rest of the movie if you pay attention yeah. to it. But also I just think it's so cool that it's just the American base again. It's smart, budgetary, smart noggin. Oh my God, there's a whole other page of facts. I told you. So, I mean, the last one's not going to be that long. But uh, so this section is entirely dedicated to is Childs a thing? So it's hotly debated as to what the ending of this movie means. Right. Because all that you're left with is Childs, who's been gone for like an entire scene, and McCready, who we've seen not be turned into a thing. So yeah. it's kind of, you can kind of estimate that uh, McCready is not a thing. Mm -hmm. But, but it's a, Childs a thing. Because yeah. he's been gone long enough that he could be assimilated. There is a lot of evidence. Um, one bullshit theory that I... I kind of like, but I didn't include because it's not, it's, I don't know. There's not much weight behind it, but uh, because McCready was throwing so many like bombs and Molotovs and stuff, it's thought that the bottle of J and B that he has actually has gasoline in it. And so when he hands it to Childs and Childs takes a sip, the thing wouldn't know what scotch tastes like. So it just drinks the gasoline and pretends to enjoy it, which is why McCready laughs. And he's like, well, I'm fucked. Oh, but I don't think there's enough weight. That would have been cool for the, uh, them to show us him actually doing that, like putting the gasoline in, yeah. the, in the whiskey bottle. But I think Carpenter intentionally wanted it to be extraordinarily vague. Okay. Um, Which also makes sense. So according to a story first reported on Reddit on February th 2013, when asked about the ambiguous ending of the film, John Carpenter responded that he never understood how could there be any confusion about whether or not Childs or McCready were human or not. because. During the last scene, Kurt Russell and Keith David staring at each other down, harshly backlit. It's completely glaringly obvious that Kurt Russell is breathing and Keith, Keith David is not. So it's meant to say that Keith David is a thing. But. But he wanted it to be not clear. Then at a horror convention Q&A session in 2008, Keith David was asked if he knew who at the very end of the movie was infected with the alien. He smiled and said, well, I don't know about Kurt Russell, but it sure as hell wasn't me. He might be right as the movie prequel, The Thing, established that while assimilating its victim, the alien gets rid of all artificial implants and appendages, including medical implants, filings, and earrings. 
child's earring is still in his head at the end of the movie. Oh, fillings, not filings, right? Filling? Did I say filings? Yeah. That's Just, how, I didn't want to make sure. That's how Kelly would pronounce it. <laughs> All right, though. So then he's not. And the actor wasn't told that. In the video game tie Oh, my God. <laughs> called The Thing 2002, it's revealed that McCready survives and is picked up by research rescue team while Childs freezes to death. Also, it's revealed that Childs is not The Thing. John Carpenter has stated that this game is canon. Okay. <laughs> so no one's The Thing. Both of them were not The Thing. Or Childs was The Thing. Oh, I think no. John Carpenter specifically is just fucking... At some point, Kurt Russell, like came up with the ending apparently of this movie and decided himself which one was the thing. Kurt Russell. Yes. And Carpenter had no interest in knowing. <laughs> so I think and Kurt Russell hasn't told anybody. I don't know. I think basically everyone involved is just like, let's keep trolling everyone, I guess. Jeez. Yeah. I like it. I like not knowing. Um, <laughs> I thought I read somewhere. It might've just been in the ending of the novella because I think a different combination of people survive but i think in the novel the thing actually wins i read somewhere that i remember you telling me that but i didn't see that when i was looking it yeah, up i tried to look it up i don't know like where i'm getting this info from or if it's just mis misinformation that i picked up elsewhere but i thought that the end of the novel was literally earth being overrun by the thing hmm. which is fun i like the idea that mccready and childs like freeze to death and then they're brought home to be buried but then Childs wakes up because he's thawed and kills everyone. That seems cool. Or maybe he's not the thing. <laughs> maybe he's not the thing. But Carpenter said he's the thing. Also said he's not the thing. So hmm. it does seem to be common that McCready isn't the thing. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. I see a big heading that says weapons and vehicles, and I am excited for you. Yeah, you know how much <laughs> I love just spouting off letters and numbers. Tell me. Give me all the details. All right. I'm going to go through these fairly quickly because I feel like you don't care about any of them. And that's honestly fine. So the flamethrowers used throughout the movie are M2A1-7s. Gary's revolver, which McCready uses later, is a Colt Trooper Mark III. McCready carries a 12-gauge Ithaca 37 shotgun. Blair's revolver is a third-generation Colt Detective Special from his desk drawer. A Heckler and Koch HK93A2 semi-automatic rifle with a scope and a 40-round magazine is used at the beginning of the film by the Norwegians. It specifically says the Norwegian with rifle, which I like to imagine that's what he's credited as. <laughs> and finally, the helicopter featured in the opening scene is a Bell 206. I feel so well-informed. Cool. Thank also, you. Also, I didn't mention this in effect, but it reminded me the pilot of that helicopter told Carpenter that he would intentionally crash it for extra money. Wow. But then was, die? I, <laughs> <laughs> I no. Crash it softly. <laughs> crash it softly. Because I think in one of the deleted scenes, the Norwegians actually crash. And then the survivor crawls out of the helicopter and chases after okay. the dog. Yep. And he's like, I'll crash this thing if for extra money, I guess. Wow. Uh, he even goes so far as when the uh, him and Kurt Russell are like leaving the American base. He hands Kurt Russell the controls. And you can see the helicopter wobble a bit as they sw swap. So that, <laughs> that guy sounds kind of messed up. <laughs> oh, man. Is that it? Yeah, that's all the facts I felt like talking about. There are honestly, if you go to the IMDb trivia section, there's just so many facts. It was so fun to read them all. <laughs> are you ready for some final thoughts? 
Maybe. Maybe I'm not. Maybe I am. Is this my final thought or is it not? Is it the thing's final thought? I like this movie a lot. We mentioned or I mentioned a few times as we were watching it the other day that this is like really horrific. If this actually happened in front of me that people were going, oh, I would be scared. Yeah, that scene of the ginger out in the snow screaming still haunts me every time I see it. Yeah. And the practical effects, we did not give them the due diligence or the justice that they deserved in this podcast. We should have just only talked about the practical effects because they were so good. I mean, if you watch Stranger Things season two, then the teacher is telling his date how the head is made with bubble gum or something. Whoa. But yeah, my only... bad note that I could say is that even on a rewatch, I still have to ask Kelly a bajillion questions (laughs) as it's happening. So I do find it a bit too confusing, but I guess that's a point. That's fair. The end. I think my takeaway of the thing more than any other horror series that we've seen is that I think it creates a really cool universe and potential for games and such. So like I said, there is the thing video game. I what you were saying from that video game makes me want to play it. I have nostalgia of it because the whole idea was that you're supposed to act normal, like literally pressing buttons weird or like walking your character in a strange way will make people think you're the thing and you will get killed by NPCs. So it's all about like trying to figure out who the thing is while playing the game like an AI. But I feel like that might just be nostalgia and it might not work as much as I think it does. It's like when you think of Hey You Pikachu, but really it was the world's shittiest game ever. Do not play it. Yeah, exactly. But you get to control a Pikachu or do (laughs) you? But there's also I think there's a thing board game as well. I just like the idea. There's also a game called Spy Party where the idea is that one person's a sniper looking at a party and everybody else needs to pretend to be AI so that they don't get shot by the sniper. I like that asymmetric gameplay of like, I need to act not like myself so that I don't get killed by Kurt Russell. Sort of like Secret Hitler. Yeah, exactly. I like those those hidden objective games. I like those games only if I'm not a liar. If you're not Hitler. (laughs) We all like playing them until we become Hitler. Well, that's been The Thing, a movie about an alien creature that just wanted to get out of the fucking cold. Next week, we'll be watching our first horror musical, Sweeney Todd, the Demon Barber of Fleet Street. Also, please don't forget about the audience feedback survey at bit.ly slash DAS survey 2020. And remember, always scream responsibly. Nah.